Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. Hello and welcome back to I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley and I'm here with Cayman McMahon. Hey, hey. And as always, our producer, Colin Moore. Hello. Today, we're ending our Cuba series without a bang, but that's not for lack of trying. That's right. <laughs> we're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was actually pretty good. That was Thank good. you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this is known as the closest that the world has ever come to all-out nuclear war. This is the closest the world has ever come to no longer being the world. Yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about that if you want, but I I still think that some some people would have survived. But it's it wouldn't have been good. Yeah, about two-thirds of the human population. Who was nuking Australia? Nobody. Who's nuking the Nazis down in Antarctica? Well, no, because the nuclear explosion would cause all the Australians to fall off. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, no, but here's the thing is like if we go into a nuclear winter, that's just like normal temperature for Australia, right? Or, that's a good point too. Like they just go down to like the 70s. Should we move to Australia? Yeah, hey, you can't just move to Australia. Oh, but here's the thing, the fallout gets on the spiders that are already like dog-sized and then they become like house-sized and then you've got to fight mm. giant spiders. I'm not about that. I think I'd rather die in the nuclear explosion. No, you want the giant spiders cuz the giant spiders take care of the other giant insectoids that would be in your house. Right. They eat the giant bees and the giant flies. The giant mosquitoes. I just feel like you've your mind you've you've been turned against giant spiders from that J.K. Rowling propaganda film. Uh, you know the, the second Harry Potter. The, yeah. yeah, the second one with the the giant spider. That's uh, that bad. giant spider was kind of nice. I mean, he was just kind of an asshole. Was the problem? Like he was nice for a right. minute, and then he was like, "Nah, I'm gonna eat you." Not hate, all giant spiders are bad giant spiders. I hate Harry Potter, especially Chamber of Secrets. Chamber of Secrets, I think, is the best movie, but... I hate all of it. You know what would make Harry Potter a whole lot better? What? Nuclear weapons. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just want to say at the top that researching for the Cuban Missile Crisis kind of freaked me out. Like, I feel like we easily forget how scary nukes are. Like, oh, it's, God, not a, yeah. it's not, like, on our minds every day. But, like, as I've researched this, like, it's been creeping into my mind. Like, I've actually had nightmares about, like, well, nuclear war. Well, that's the war. thing. I feel like, I don't know if this was better or worse for American anxiety. Because, I don't, you know, obviously we're identifying a lot more things with anxiety now. But I w I'm curious because this gave me anxiety reading about it. This happened a while back. I can't imagine living at the time and waking up every day thinking like, I wonder if the bombs are going to be dropped and humanity's going to end today. Mm -hmm. Like every day, like that kind of anxiety. But I was thinking also at the same time, like that kind of anxiety also makes like your car payment seem not so bad. <laughs> like, you know? So, but yeah, dude, this is this is such a stressful topic. <laughs> Before we get into this, do you want to say, Kennedy, good job or bad job with the Cuban Missile Crisis? Great job. I think great job too. I, I think, think he. I, I think, think he really he traversed it well. It. Yeah. Um, 
we'll get into why, but... I think Khrushchev did, too. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I have so I much think... respect for Khrushchev coming out of this, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, we it's going to really We don't want to spoil the episode at the top. Because, well, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the reasons why Khrushchev is terrible. So, like, right. it, it comes later. Before we get into it, let me just say that if this were a normal episode, like if we had done all of Cuba as one big episode, right? Mm-hmm. This would be the part in the story, like, Cuba's coming off beating the Americans. They're at the top of the world stage. They've just proven to the Soviets that they are a force to be reckoned with. Like, they mm-hmm. are on top of the world. And I feel like this is the like this is the peak, right? So this episode is where, like, if we're looking at Cuba as a whole, this is where it starts to start into the decline. Yes. Right now, they're going to get a lot of mustard, and then they're going to, as we'll see later, lose that mustard. And all of it. <laughs> Pretty much yeah. all of it. I mean, you know, we'll talk about, we'll have one more. Don't, this is not the end. We'll have one more episode where we'll toss in all of our favorite stories we didn't get to talk about and kind of like give a synopsis of where Cuba's been since the Cold War and since all that stuff. So, like, there's still more to come. But yeah, after, after, the Cuban Missile Crisis, they uh, they kind of have to do their own thing for a little while. They're no longer like big players on the world, world stage like they are at this point in history. Yeah. But in starting off talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, first I want to talk about obviously the major players. Because we've talked about Kennedy and Khrushchev like they've come up a few times. Um, but I kind of want to like do a quick comparison of Kennedy and Khrushchev. So uh, I'll start with Khrushchev now. Uh, Khrushchev was born in a very poor peasant village near Ukraine-Russia border uh, in 19... No, not 19. 1894. Uh, He became a skilled metal worker and joined the Bolshevik Party in 1918, which is kind of impressive because, like I said, he came from poverty. Um, Him, he got an assistantship with a skilled metal worker and then kind of worked his way up like that. So, like, this... At this point, Khrushchev is already impressive. Like, you've worked your way out of squalor. Uh, During the Russian Revolution, Khrushchev served in the Red Army as a political commissar. Uh, So this is a political ideology officer. Essentially, uh, what they do is they, like, you attach one to every group of soldiers. I'm not sure how large a group of soldiers. And they indoctrinate the soldiers. They're like, we're fighting for communism. We're fighting so that when you get home, the capitalists don't take away your house because you've been off serving your army and blah, 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 blah. They're the spirit squad. Yeah, they're like the spirit squad. He's like a he's like a mascot. <laughs> he's a mascot. He just holds up communism. a hammer and sickle all the time. He's like, "This is what you're fighting for." He's in a giant felt suit of Stalin. Oh my uh, god, just a big head. Then <laughs> oh. uh, by the time that this war was over, which 1921 is when the Russian Revolution ended, uh, he had actually worked himself up to be assigned as party official overseeing the reinstatement of mines. Uh, some of these, like, near Ukraine, where he was actually from. Now, are these are these digging mines, or are these exploding mines? Digging mines. Digging okay. mines. So this is from his uh, experience as a metal worker in Ukraine. So a lot of what he was doing that work with, from what I understand, was around mines, that sort of thing. And also, this is his neck of the woods. So essentially, after the war's over, and, you know, Khrushchev had proved himself to be a great Bolshevik uh the party was like how about you go back and you oversee like us getting these mines back up to operational because obviously when the war was going on like all the people working the mines pretty much left uh to serve in the war um so you know he's 
getting everything back up and running, getting the supplies that they need, getting the men that they need, allocating it, and does a fantastic job at it. Um, by 1924, his success in these assigned duties uh, had led him to be appointed party secretary over a small district in Ukraine. Now, party secretary over a small district is essentially the same way of saying, like, mayor of a city, I guess. So, uh, essentially, party positions are political offices, if that makes sense. Uh, so, a decade later, and sorry for the skip in time, but there's only so much that we can cover and we can't make this into a Nikita Khrushchev episode... Um, but he worked himself up from that small district in Ukraine to become party leader of the Moscow City Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which is a long title, but essentially he's now the mayor of Moscow. Moscow being the capital of Russia, very big deal. It's around this time that he would meet Stalin, and the two would kind of become buddies. There's a lot of evidence around this time that Nikita Khrushchev might have been a little bit of a kiss-ass for Stalin, but that's kind of the only way that you could be around this time, because he was a politician. Were, he was a politician. But the thing is, if you didn't kiss Stalin's ass, you typically ended up dead. So uh, this is he does a good job here as well. In 1937, Khrushchev was appointed leader of the Communist Party of Ukraine by Stalin personally. And this made him pretty much the president of Ukraine. Now, of course, Ukraine's under the USSR, but uh, he's still in control of an entire country. Uh, here, Khrushchev ramped up the purges. Now, the purges were what I was talking about when I said you kind of had to kiss Stalin's ass. Essentially, all across the USSR at this time, anytime that they would suspect anyone of being slightly anti-communist, slightly against the party even personally slightly against them or a political adversary, you would be abducted, arrested, and executed. And if you didn't laugh hard enough at Stalin's jokes. He, literally, that's not a joke on Michael's part. That was, that was a thing. So Khrushchev was doing this in Ukraine, and within a few months he had replaced damn near all the leadership beneath him. Like, he'd completely flushed him out. He was like, I, I'm in charge now. Killed everyone off. But then a war came, and Khrushchev did serve in the war once again. He actually got some good war stories, kind of became a war hero. He was at Stalingrad. Um, he did see some action, but, you know, once again, I can't make this an entire Khrushchev episode. He rebuilt Ukraine afterwards when he came back. Obviously, Ukraine was one of the, being a buffer zone between Europe and Russia uh, that saw a lot of action during World War II. But in 1949, Khrushchev was recalled to Moscow and led the city once more, uh, and this was kind of to be joined into Stalin's circle. So mostly being in the inner circle meant helping Stalin make decisions about running the country, but really most of the time they were getting drunk and watching cowboy movies till dawn. Um, not necessarily that they wanted to get drunk and watch cowboy movies till dawn. What do you mean by that, Cayman? What do you mean they didn't <laughs> want to get drunk and watch cowboy movies until dawn? Stalin, Stalin, Stalin didn't even, there weren't even Russian translations for these. Stalin would just watch them in English and make everyone sit there and watch them with Did him. Did he like, speak Stalin, English? I don't know. I think so. I think Stalin spoke English. It seems like all Russians speak English and yeah. all Americans are just like, fuck you, speak English. <laughs> like That becomes a plot point later. It does, yeah. So... There's actually a great part where they illustrate this. Have you seen the movie? Um, it's a Coen Brothers film, I believe. Uh, Death of Stalin. I don't think it's Coen Brothers, and I hated that movie. 
ignore Michael, but they uh, do a great job in that movie of um, showcasing like exactly this type of thing. Essentially, they show Nikita Khrushchev and Stalin like watching cowboy movies super late and in the morning. Khrushchev comes home like super late, very drunk, and recites everything that he said back to Stalin. And like his wife like ranks what jokes were good and which ones are bad, which just kind of the perception of how Khrushchev was. So, you know, he's doing everything he can to stay on Stalin's good side. Now, a lot of the reason that people theorize why Stalin decided to bring Khrushchev back to Moscow from Ukraine, because it's a little bit of a demotion, honestly. Um, But essentially, you have these other two people, uh, Malenkov and Berea. And these two people were kind of positioning themselves to be Stalin's successor. And Everyone kind of knew that. Now, Stalin didn't want anyone beneath him getting too much power. So essentially, he brought Khrushchev in as a third player, and also someone that Stalin knew would support him. Um, So this reduced their influence. Uh, But in March 1953, Stalin suffered a stroke and died. And as many expected, he was succeeded by Berea, who by December, Khrushchev had tried in secret and then executed. In 1953, at the age of 59, Khrushchev, who was born a peasant, became the leader of the USSR. So, after Stalin died, this Berea guy took over, and then Khrushchev had him killed. Yeah, so there was an interim president. Okay, we're going to need to do this as its own episode, I think, Yeah, at yeah, some yeah. point. That's why I'm saying I'm glazing over. The entire, okay. the entire plot, like, succession story and... This is why I think Death of Stalin is actually a good movie. Michael doesn't like it. Take it for what you will. I'm a big fan. Uh, But it does a good job of kind of laying out, like, the entire succession after uh, Stalin's death because it was just a shit show. Maybe I need to watch the movie again. Watch the movie again. I I really like it. I think you'll enjoy it, too. It's, It's a very... It's historical, but they add in comedy elements. Steve Buscemi's in it. Yeah. He's Nikita Khrushchev. Yeah, so in 1953, at the age of 59, Khrushchev, who was born a peasant, had become leader of the USSR. Now, uh, Kennedy, we're going to do a compare and contrast here. So remember that story from peasantry to leader of a country, very strong, very firm. Kennedy was born to a wealthy American dynasty of politicians, businessmen, and socialites in 1917. Now, if you don't know about the Kennedy family, look them up. They're pretty much as close as it gets to American royalty. Now, his grandfathers were a state legislator slash behind-the-scenes political mover, and that's P.J. Kennedy. And his other grandfather was a two-time mayor of Boston and U.S. congressman, John F. Fitzgerald. He took his name after John F. Fitzgerald. So his father was the U.S. ambassador to England, and his mother was a countess of the Holy Roman Church. Of course, they were Catholics. Now, John F. Kennedy, which I'll now just refer to as Kennedy for brevity's sake, had a pretty tough childhood consisting of private schools, vacations at his family's summer home in Cape Cod, and winter home in Palm Beach. Sounds horrible. Uh, Yeah, terrible. Uh, He finished up his secondary education at the prestigious Choate. Is it Choate or Coat? It's Chode. Choate. Chode. Oh, it's apparently Chode. It's French. Uh, at the prestigious Chote Private School, where he was voted most likely to succeed. Uh, he went on to attend school at Princeton for a few months, but he had some health problems that caused him to drop out. Uh, he resumed his education at Harvard, where his thesis would go on to become a best-selling book. Wow. 
Uh, during World War II, he was a Navy officer, and by the war's end, he was given both the Navy and Marine Corps Medal and the Purple Heart for the famous back injury he received when his PT boat was rammed. And then he, uh, I'm sure everyone knows this story, uh, Kennedy swam with a broken back and, like, saved a guy and carried him a mile but swimming. Like I didn't know that story. Yeah, I never so. heard that either. You didn't know that story? Yeah, Kennedy's Kennedy is a war hero. Uh, huh. It's doesn't relate to this story very much but that's true um after the war kennedy's father decided that he should get serious about his life and become president yeah because he was Uh, just out here goofing off yeah he's out there goofing off (laughs) at harvard (laughs) (laughs) breaking his back and yeah joining the war so actually kennedy's father wanted um john f kennedy's older brother to be president and that's he kind of groomed him up his entire life to be president uh, unfortunately, his older brother died in the war. So now it was John F. Kennedy's turn. Wrong kid died. Wrong kid died. Well, as we'll see, not really. Um, oh, yeah, so, so the right kid died? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, wow, got, I mean, I don't know. Maybe his, older brother, maybe his older brother would have done better at the Bay of Pigs. Ooh, shots fired, dude. In Dallas? <laughs> oh, no! Michael! That's rough. We might have to cut that. What that might be say? too spicy. You he said, said in Dallas. And I said in Dallas. Oh uh, no. <laughs> we might we might have to cut that. That one's a yikes. So yeah, um, once Kennedy's father decided that he should become president, uh, he politely persuaded U.S. Representative James Michael Curley to resign his uncontested seat so that his son could run for it. Uh, which, of course, Kennedy got with the advantage of Papa bankrolling his campaign. Wait, he successfully, like, he asked the guy to step down and he did it? Yeah. That's nuts. (laughs) Yeah, no, Kennedy's father, the Kennedys are royalty. Yeah, they were like, hey, will you quit? Will you quit your job so that my son can have your job? He got something for it. He was kind of, I think he was kind of like, hey, how about you go ahead and um, resign your seat and I'll let you be like mayor of Boston or something like that. I'll let you be mayor of Boston. It was like, or like bankroll your campaign, but really we know what this all is. Because like normally it's like, hey, can can you give my son an internship? Like, can you just let him sit around and do nothing and get paid so he can put it on his resume? No, he was like, my son wants your job, sir. Um... (laughs) Leave. <laughs> Michael, these are the fucking Kennedys. I apparently, apparently, I was. If uh, the Kennedys told me to quit, I'd quit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after his term as U.S. Representative, uh, Kennedy then becomes a senator. Uh, I'm not really sure why he did this. He switched from the House. Is it more prestigious to be a senator? Yeah. Um, you don't have to run as often. Like, I mean, there's better. slightly less of them. Senators yeah, better. You have more power, and you run every six years. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. It's six well, years. So he becomes a senator. Um, while he's senator, he writes a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, like you do. In 1960, due to his political experience, wealthy-ass family, and good looks, he convinced the American people to give him a shot at being president of the USA. So he made Papa proud. Here he is. And for um, more information about that, go listen to the Nixon episode. Yeah. Uh, So Kennedy was 43 when he assumed the position, making him the youngest elected president of our nation's history. Not the youngest president overall, but the youngest elected. So as you can see, very different story from Kennedy to Khrushchev. 
Uh, one has a silver spoon. The other one, poverty, Bolshevik, comes to power through, you know, fighting for it. Kennedy came to power through his daddy. Daddy, yeah, pretty much. Daddy, daddy, <laughs> I want to be president. So as, <laughs> so as we know, um, Kennedy's president now. So let's flash forward to 1961. Uh, this is a little something called the we, Vienna We Summit. flash forwarded from 1960 to 1961. What a flash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, after, well, I'm, I'm skipping the first year of Kennedy's presidency, which we all know is very lit. It was just a, it was a, it was just event after event. <laughs> right. Uh, so after the failure of Bay of Pigs in April, in the wake of rising tensions, actually, no, you the... haven't skipped anything. He took he took office in February, and then in April there was a failure of Bay of Pigs. You skipped two months of the okay, presidency. Okay, so let me skip two months ahead. <laughs> Jesus. So after the failure of Bay of Pigs in April, in the wake of rising tensions between the two world superpowers, Kennedy decided he needed to meet Khrushchev face to face. Now, Kennedy's advisors warned him against it, saying that it was too early in his presidency to try and win over Khrushchev, although it wasn't too early to wage war with Cuba. I don't get that. But, you know, anyways, Kennedy thought that if he could just talk to Khrushchev, that he could charm him into easing off Berlin. Uh, see, at this guy. time, there's been a lot of... Germany's still split up. Um, the Berlin Wall is being built, kind of Germans are being cut off from other Germans. I didn't realize that the Berlin Wall was built this late in the game. Like, I didn't realize it was the 60s when it was built. I thought it was like, oh yeah, the war ended, we split up Germany, and then like, we built the wall. Yeah, but you know, that's another one of those parts of the story that we can't get down the rabbit hole of that, because we've really got to end this whole Cuba thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh... Adversely, Khrushchev thought that Kennedy was young and inexperienced, and he thought that he could just intimidate Kennedy and get what he wanted. Um, Khrushchev was right in this, uh, pretty much. The Vienna Summit is actually, well, it's best summarized by Kennedy himself. In a quote to a New York Times reporter, Kennedy said of the conference, He beat the hell out of me. It was the worst thing in my life. He savaged me. And this is after the Bay of Pigs. He said this was the worst thing in my life. <laughs> yeah, this meeting with Khrushchev. So not surprisingly, he comes away from the summit accomplishing none of his goals. Uh, and he possibly just escalated tensions. And really, Kennedy just thought, I'm pretty, I'm popular, I'm going to go in here, I'm going to talk to this guy. And he's going to be like, I, I, I love him, I'm, I'm going to do whatever the U.S. wants. And that's not really how things work in the real world. Now, in Cuba, tensions are also rising. Obviously, you know, we invaded with Bay of Pigs, so jot that down. Keep that in mind. Uh, Operation Mongoose also starts. This is essentially in November of 61. Uh, Kennedy approved this operation. Because he was sore as hell about Bay of Pigs, uh, he wanted a power change in Cuba as quickly as possible. Um, So he would do pretty much anything to get it, short of actually doing anything meaningful. See, Operation Mongoose was an operation to attempt to assassinate Castro, sabotage Cuba, and covertly sow unrest against the Castro regime. It was a blunder in the end, but it was enough to piss off Castro and the Cuban people. It was clear to many in America before, during, and after this operation that nothing short of military intervention would dispose of the Castro administration, and Kennedy wasn't having it. 
The next reason that Cuba is pissed off is the embargo. February 8th, 1962, Kennedy signs an executive order expanding the embargo against Cuba, completely banning all imports of Cuban goods, even those that had been manufactured in other countries. Now, this closed all loopholes for Cuba to gain income from essentially their entire hemisphere. Uh, what people were doing was like in Mexico, you could have a guy go to Cuba and buy, you know, a whole cargo ship's worth of Cuban cigars. And then as long as he was selling those through Mexico, he would still be Cuban cigars and you could buy them. Um, this, this executive order takes away that loophole. Um, and of course, once the demand is taken away for these Cuban cigars from all these other countries in South America that we're getting those Cuban supplies to, uh, the business is taken away from Cuba. So... Cuba, getting even more and more pissed, decides to take their relationship with the USSR to the next level. They got to second base. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they got to the nuclear base. <laughs> now, uh, two major things were going on in the USSR's foreign policy movement at the time. They wanted to keep Berlin. They wanted to bring Berlin into the USSR and therefore have a larger stake in Europe. The problem was the rest of the world was very against them having Berlin because they didn't want them to have a larger stake in Europe, um, which is how we get to the second thing going on in the policy. They didn't want to be blowed up, at least not without blowing up the U.S. too. Because of these two reasons, the USSR decided that Cuba would be a great place for some nukes because A, with a nuclear deterrent in Cuba, they could take Berlin, and B, it would guarantee mutually assured destruction, the best nuclear deterrent of all. <laughs> um, the biggest problem the USSR thought would be getting Castro on board to make his country a nuclear hot zone. Because, you know, obviously they're not going to be able to, like, put all their nuclear weapons in Cuba. And if you put nuclear weapons in Cuba aimed at the U.S., then the U.S. is going to take nuclear weapons and aim them at Cuba. Um, so they were, were like... Castro's not going to be for this, whatever. Hey, Kim, they take him to offer what? I'm just letting you know, uh, if you ever run for president, they're going to make fun of the way you say nuclear. Nuclear? You oh, say God. Nuclear. nuclear. You nuclear? say nuclear. Nuclear. That's how George W. Bush said it, and they made fun of him for it. Nuclear? I learned from Bush. Wait, it's what is nuclear. It's nuclear. nuclear. And he says nuclear. 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 Yeah. Nuclear. 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 It's three, it's three syllables. It's not nuclear. Yes. It's nuclear. not nuclear. It's nuclear. Nuclear? Nuclear. Yes. It's better than nuclear. -er. Well, That's Michael, I'm syllables. sorry for my southern Nuke your lore? That's three. Nuclear. Nuclear. Nuclear is nuclear not right. It's nuclear. Whatever. All listeners, I would like to apologize for this garbage content. Who fucking gives a shit? I'm nuclear. <laughs> it's how you say the word. We oh, are a fucking right podcast. Into the podcast. We should at least know how to say words. God. Where was I even at when you started this? Who knows? Who cares? This is way uh, better than so the So the biggest problem... The biggest problem the USSR thought... No, no, no. I've actually already been through that. They thought Castro didn't want nukes, but he actually yeah. did. He loved them. So, um, essentially, they were very, very wrong. Uh, Castro was all about the nukes. 
Uh, between Bay of Pigs, the embargo, and the general attempts to fuck with Cuba, uh, Castro was willing to try anything to get the U.S. off his back and level the playing field. So Cuba and the USSR struck a deal. And I think more than just, like, trying to get the U.S. off its back, like, one of the biggest ways that you can say I am worthy of the world stage is to have a nuke, especially at this time. Like, think about the countries that have a nuke now. Yeah. Most of them don't by this point. Like, China doesn't have a nuke. India doesn't have a nuke. There's no nukes in the Middle Shit, East. most of them still don't. China and India. Well, do. no, I'm saying most countries. No, still most don't countries have a nuke. don't, but especially yeah. in the 60s. Like, having yeah. a nuke puts you, like, at the top of the list. So, for Cuba to have a nuke, like, Castro, I think this is partially an ego thing for Castro. Like, if he has nuclear weapons, even if they're not technically his, yeah. he, he gets a seat at the table, basically. Yeah. So, you know, they the USSR and Cuba strike up this deal, right? And so. The USSR starts shipping the stuff over. Well, boats start arriving carrying supplies, nuclear weapons, troops, blah, blah, blah. But to get to the new sites that they're building to actually house these nukes, they have to drive through Cuban cities. So Cuban citizens are looking at USSR trucks (laughs) carrying cylindrically shaped objects that are covered up. And so they write to their friends and family that live in Miami saying, hey, um, just letting you know, the USSR just delivered a bunch of nukes to Cuba. Um, (coughs) Not to mention the fact that the U.S. has, like, the U.S. definitely has, like... Actual spies, right? Yeah, we have But beyond that, like, this is supposed to be, like, a clandestine operation, but when you just drive it through towns, like, it... It's the worst kept secret in history. So yeah. so people in Miami start writing the FBI saying, hey, the Soviets have nukes in Cuba. Um, and the CIA passes that, or I'm sorry, the FBI passes that over to the CIA. And so <laughs> the CIA is like, wrong fucking department. Yeah, hey, <laughs> we can't do anything about that, bro. Um, so the CIA starts sending U-2 surveillance planes over Cuba to try to figure out what the heck's going on. So anyway, these pictures start coming back, and Urban Legend says that when they got the pictures, there was uh, one of the members of the CIA noticed that these bases started having soccer fields on them, and he pointed out that Cubans don't play soccer, Russians play soccer, Cubans play baseball, so if there's soccer fields on these bases, that's almost guaranteed there are Russians on those bases. That story sounds like so much bullshit. Exactly. Like, you can play more than one sport. There was that whole yeah. story about uh, Che Guevara that he made up about teaching those yeah, orphan teaching kids soccer, how to play right? so, soccer. Yeah, teaching soccer, right? I'll say I, quote, I, I don't believe that up. story, but it's, it's widely spread, and people say it as if it's fact. I don't... It's a fun story, though, so I wanted to share it. Americans um, can't watch basketball. They watch football. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Baseball's so the- America's pastime. So, all right. No, it's not. What's more likely that actually happened is that someone noticed that the surface-to-air missiles on these bases were starting to be arranged in the exact same way that the Soviets arranged their surface-to-air missiles on their nuclear sites. So, it was clear that there was at least some influence by the USSR on what was going on on these bases. 
So it's, hey, it's not military intervention. They're just military advisors. It's they're doing some consulting work on the side. All right, right. <laughs> Hang around till we get to Vietnam, which will be our next long series that we do. No, in like we can't. 10 years. We can't. Yeah, we can't do that one anytime soon. I'm right. I need a break. We need to do some businesses. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> So, then in October, a spy plane was able to get definitive proof that medium-range nuclear missiles had been deployed in Cuba. Uh, Now, these missiles were capable of landing anywhere in the continental United States. Not only that, but the shipment of nukes also came with over 40,000 USSR troops, as well as a ton of USSR aircraft and anti-aircraft weaponry. Uh, the Soviets were going to make sure that if they were delivering these nukes, that they were going to be protected. Um, now, set all of that aside for a minute, because before we move on, I want to stop for a second and explain the capabilities in the nuclear field of both the U.S. and the USSR. So, to give you a good idea, we're going to look at the public perception of what the capabilities were, and then the actual reality of it. So, as far as the public knew, the Soviets were talking up how great their nuclear program was doing. Khrushchev was telling everybody that they had a missile capable of hitting a target 8,000 miles away. Which is really convenient, because that's how big the Earth is. So, if you can hit from 8,000 miles, you can hit anywhere in the world. Yep. But this is that whole thing that, I mean, we touched on this a little bit last episode. Like, you, the U.S. military, USSR military, like, everyone always overinflates what they have. They always want to sound better than they are. And the great thing with military technology is it's so hush-hush that we can say, like, and I'm just going to use the Reagan example one more time. We have the Death Star, which is a satellite up in space that can shoot a laser down and destroy... It was called Star Wars. Star Wars, it, you know, whatever. Like, it... military technology is so secret that we can say whatever we want and everyone either has to believe it and typically doesn't like at the same time like typically doesn't but as we'll talk about that's not always the case right so anyway khrushchev's out here telling everybody oh i can hit anywhere in the world with a nuke blah 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 um and not only that but they were also saying we are mass producing these weapons so we're, you know, we're, factories are pumping them out. We've got enough to wipe out the whole planet. Um, so contrast that with the United States. We bought the Soviets' bullshit hook, line, and sinker. But that might have actually been a blessing in disguise. You see, in 1959, the Secretary of Defense testified before the Senate and warned that in the next few years, the Soviets could lead the United States in nuclear capabilities three to one. And then a few months later, the Soviets became the first nation to send a man-made object to the moon with their Luna 2 probe, which caused the U.S. to sweat a little bit more. Uh, Are you talking about when the Soviets won the space race for like the sixth time? (laughs) Yeah, and then we were like, nope, we won because we sent a man to the moon first. And it's like, what about all the other things that the Soviets did? (laughs) But no, we we, we just moved the goalpost to putting a man on the moon. And then we're like, we uh, mission accomplished. America number one, Russia (laughs) close second. (laughs) They beat us. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, well, and that's the thing, right? Is their rockets and missiles were vastly superior for a moment in time. Well, they but, stole the better Germans. 
Yeah. We couldn't do yeah. anything well, here's about the thing, it. guys. Who has SpaceX these days? Okay. That's true. That's true. But but the thing is, the Soviets were lacking innovation, right? So they were still using liquid fuel, and we were, like, trying to get solid fuels working. So once we got those working, our rockets blew theirs out of the water. But for a while, we couldn't figure out that technology, so we were lagging behind. But then once we got that, everything started kind of getting into a groove. Isn't and then, it? Yeah. Like, I, I dabble in, like, space stuff, as you guys know. Isn't it funny how we've switched back? Like, SpaceX uses no solid fuel. It's all liquid really? fuel. Well, yeah. that's funny. That. That, no, it's funny now because it's, like, we use liquid fuel again. Uh, we use, like, steel yeah. for our, like, rockets <laughs> yeah, again. Like, everything's, shy. like... <laughs> yeah, it's, like, back to the basics. We had it it's right so the cr- first time. It really is. No, we, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So you guys are saying the Soviets' rockets were better, right? No. I get it. They no. could have been. They didn't master them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was See, raw, went, but it was, you know, early. Went, the problem was we kept stealing all the Germans to build our rockets. Apparently, we should have been stealing the South Africans to build our rockets. That's true. He doesn't He doesn't build the rockets. He doesn't even design the Elon rockets. Musk is he out there with the hammer and nails. Elon God. Elon is our God. He's God emperor. No, he's not. We, we no, will do no. his episode one day. So shortly after the Luna 2 uh, landed on the moon, Khrushchev told the press, quote, uh, now we have such... Got to work on my Russian. Uh, now we have such a stock of rockets, such an amount of atomic and hydrogen weapons that if they attack us, we could wipe our potential enemies off the face of the earth. I like I how, I you, got, hold on, I like how yeah. you say I have to work on my Russian, but everything you said was English. You have to work on yeah. your Russian accent. I need to work on my <laughs> Russian accent. I feel like I got Pretty a little more, more Cuban there than anything, but... That was good. Um, yeah. uh, this perceived inferiority by the United States in the nuclear arms race came to be known as the missile gap. We cannot allow a nuclear gap! <laughs> exactly. Um, so, in reality, by 1962, the... United States had roughly six times the number of nuclear weapons that the USSR had. Uh, And I wanted to give some hard figures here, but honestly, everybody gives a different number, and I think they're all probably wrong. Um, Yeah. And also, as we talked about, the whole fuel situation, the U.S.'s technology is just vastly superior by this point. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be thinking, ha-ha, stupid Soviets, we have six times the number of nukes that you do. But remember, these are nukes we're talking about. So really, you just need one to make an impact, to make a huge impact. Right. Also, if you combine the nuclear power of the U.S. and USSR, it's the equivalent of roughly 50,000 of the nukes that the U.S. dropped in 1945. So, yeah, not good. So when Kennedy gets the news that the missiles are in Cuba, he's understandably concerned. So to help him make decisions, he assembles essentially the Avengers of nuclear deterrence. (laughs) The group consisted Uh, of the National Security Council, the Undersecretary of State, the Ambassador to the USSR, and the Deputy Secretary of Defense. I would like to say that this is more like the Justice League, but like the movie Justice League. So it's bad? Rather than the Avengers. Yeah, because the Avengers was good. Yeah. I, I would like to call this... This team's pretty good. Uh, we didn't get into nuclear war. That's true. 
Not for lack of trying. That's true. Okay. So anyway, this team was formally known as the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or for short, Colin, are you ready for this? I'm ready. XCOM. Oh. <laughs> yes. The coolest name for anything ever. It's pretty dope. So, Kennedy secretly records all of XCOM's meetings, which is how we know so much about what happens next. And I'm sure Nixon would be very proud of Kennedy at this point. <laughs> So, after a lot of deliberation, the team comes up with a series of ideas for what the U.S. can do next about the missiles in Cuba. Number one, the U.S. could do nothing. Now, (laughs) while this is the easiest option, it's also really dumb. Number two, the U.S. could ask the USSR to remove the missiles pretty pleased with sugar on top. Also really dumb. Number three, the U.S. could try to get Castro to turn on the Soviets. It's a risky gamble. We are not good friends. Uh, he hates our guts. So, <laughs> also a really dumb idea. There's no avenue that you can take to make Castro hate the Soviets. Like it, No. Uh, there's no avenue you can take to make Castro like the United States. To right, even trust the much. United States. Yeah. All right. Number four. The U.S. could invade Cuba. Because it went so well the first time, and that was before they had nukes pointed at the United States. Really dumb idea. Number five, the U.S. could bomb all the missile sites. Uh, All the ones we know about, at least. Which is a great idea. Uh, Just go ahead and threaten the lives of the people who control the nukes. Dumb idea. Number six, the U.S. could create a naval blockade to prevent missiles from arriving in Cuba doesn't do anything about the missiles that are already in Cuba and pointed at the United States. So a really dumb idea. Yeah. And that's all of our ideas. So That's all I could figure out, at least. As, yeah. I would say, in retrospect, offer Castro a whole bunch of ice cream and offer to get him on your side. Unfortunately, I don't think that we had the intelligence at the time to know how much Fidel Castro loved ice cream. Also, we'll there's an embargo next came and we can't trade. The government can. Well, we and we can... don't negotiate with terrorists, Cayman. Is he a terrorist at that <laughs> sure. point? Sure. He's got we nukes don't. pointed at the United States. I think I, he's I still a know. government at that point, right? Like, like a terrorist has to have no... I don't know. Apparently last week, uh, or last episode, negotiating with him was negotiating with terrorists. You guys oh, yelled at that was at according me. to you. No, it was according to you guys. You're like, oh, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he, he kidnapped a bunch of Americans, right? That That's all different. No, he didn't kidnap them. He captured them when he when they invaded his they country. They were prisoners of war. They were Cubans. It wasn't war. It was a military They were detained. Action. If it wasn't war, then he's a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> it was war, yes. Whatever. It's he's not, not war a now. Terrorist. So, he's okay. not a terrorist. If it's a war, I think we're allowed to negotiate. Moving on. We're going to move on. Unfortunately, those were all six of our plans, and they were all dumb. So XCOM spent a bunch of time trying to decide which plan was the least dumb. Of course, the military men wanted to straight up invade because they have a bunch of cool weapons that they want to use, regardless if the U.S. gets turned to ash in the process. And Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time, has a great quote about this um, that I want to use. Is he related to JFK? He is related to JFK. I don't know He's exactly how he sounded, brother. so I'm not going to use my JFK impersonation. No, no, yeah, he, they sounded the same. Fuck. How do you not know how Robert Kennedy sounded? I've never heard him talk. Okay. He was almost president. 
I thought, as I listened, of the many times that I heard the military take positions which, if wrong, had the advantage that no one would be around at the end to know. So anyway, his quote right. basically means, uh, it, you know, the military guys have the benefit that if we go with their plan, none of us will be around to know the outcome. So uh, JFK really didn't want to do any of that. He feared that if they attacked Cuba, then the USSR would take Berlin and the U.S. would look like they had no self-control. Um, however, he couldn't just sit idle, as a few weeks before, he had stated publicly that the U.S. would retaliate against any Cuban offensive action. Plans were drawn up for an all-out invasion of Cuba by the U.S. military, and drills began running to prepare the troops for any inevitabilities. Because they don't have anything better to do around this time. Right. Um, <laughs> now, while this was happening, however, XCOM was still meeting, and the conclusion they came to was basically... Let's just try the the naval blockade, and worst case, we can just pivot to an invasion because we'll already have our battleships there. Like basically, right. we can we can get in position, and then like see what we can make happen. So with that, President Kennedy faced the nation in a live broadcast, and in the speech, Kennedy explained the situation to the American people and announced that any missile launched from Cuba will be considered an attack from the Soviet Union and will be met with retaliation. He also explains that the blockade will be for ships from any nation carrying offensive weapons. He includes that they will allow food and supplies through. Which is because, always our strategy. Yeah. Right. Well, and the thing is, um, the Soviet Union had done a blockade of Berlin and not allowed food and supplies through. Right. And that's kind of what he called back to is like, hey, we're not going to be, we're, we're not the bad guys here. You're the bad guys here. Um, Which, right. And something that I didn't realize about this blockade until this point, like any ship could come through. They just had to be boarded by the U.S. Navy. They just cars. had to be checked. Yeah, yeah. Even it was just our troops were. Allowed. It was it was essentially a like toll booth, but you didn't have to pay a toll. Right. Like they stopped you and they looked around in your car. It was a yeah. it was a D, DIY Wait, what's the, um, DUI checkpoint, pretty much. Uh, you have to customs. It was customs. Yeah. They set up a customs blockade. Yeah, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. It was. Yeah, although, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of things about U.S. customs. Like, they pass a lot of shit through without looking at it at all. Just because there's so much. Like, there's like so the, uh, much. It's like the TSA. Like, yeah, that like actually, sketchy that shit. actually literally happens with the blockade, but we don't have enough time okay. to get into it. But there were ships that were, like, we're coming just, up like, and wave we were through. like, mm, yeah. they look good. <laughs> like, no, yeah, I get it, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. So, at the conclusion of his speech, the United States entered DEFCON 3 and prepared for whatever was about to come next. DEFCON 3 sounds super cool, but that's like halfway down the list of everything's fucked, right? Mm-hmm. DEFCON 1 is nuclear war has already started. So to be in yeah. DEFCON 3, you are like, there's only one step up before like you're yeah, actually in DEFCON 2 is like there's... It's like on the brink. Like you need to yeah. be ready at any given like moment. Like you could literally be having war with Six USSR. Hours. And you need like to be ready to launch a nuke. Like, or you need to be ready to like all out invade. Be ready because like very it's, bad, it's about very to go bad. <laughs> so let me explain the blockade for a second. So right. October twenty third, Fidel Castro states they can only take away our sovereignty by wiping us off the face of the earth. Very bold claim, 
at this time. <sighs> yeah, and it may Old very well say. happen. Because like we said, we had nukes pointed at Cuba as soon as we learned that there were nukes in Cuba. It was one of our backup plans. So now it's time for the U.S. and the USSR to go toe-to-toe. And unless one of the two backs down, very reasonably could mean the end of the world as we know it. Cue the R.E.M. song. It's the (laughs) end of of the world world as we know it. So uh, around 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the morning of October 24th, the U.S. issues a full blockade to Cuba. Now, this includes dozens and dozens of U.S. naval ships forming a perimeter in international waters surrounding the island state and anticipating the arrival of Soviet ships. 23 B-52s are constantly flying a perimeter around the USSR equipped with target locations and nuclear bombs. 145 intercontinental ballistic missiles stood on ready alert. 161 interceptors, also armed with nukes, were deployed. Now, these were to stop incoming ICBMs. So, essentially, we see a nuclear missile coming for the U.S., we shoot our own nuke at it. Nuke hopefully, the nuke. Yeah. Nuke the nuke. Well, <laughs> it makes such a large explosion that hopefully right. we could hit it out of the sky. Right. Uh, the U.S. also supposedly prepped itself for a full military invasion that could kick off in as little as an hour, if need be. As in, we'd land on Cuban shores in an hour. Um, and this is all standing by. This is what we're ready for. On October 25th, an approaching Soviet fleet of cargo ships, presumably carrying military supplies, comes within range of the embargo line. Unknown to the American ships at this time, the Soviet cargo ships were accompanied by submarines equipped with nuclear-tipped torpedoes. Now, the only person whose permission was needed to fire these torpedoes was technically the three top submarine commanders. So the three people on the submarine with the highest rank had to approve it. And we'll actually see that that comes to fruition later. Um, And the the reasoning behind this was you're in a submarine. You're a stealth ship underwater. You can't contact anyone. So they put these nuclear tip missiles on the submarines and they say, use these at your discretion. Like, you'll know when war's starting. Very simply, the U.S. had orders to fire on any enemy ships that it believed to be carrying military supplies that would not stop for the blockade. Like we said, this is customs. So if someone's trying to run through customs, we're going to blow them up. Uh, The Soviets had orders to attack any ship that fired upon them. So you see the tension. Um, Now, at this time... We call it Khrushchev. Khrushchev blinks. Uh, there's a famous quote about this, but it's it's kind of a dumb quote, so I decided not to bring it up because he, essentially what happens is all these cargo ships are coming for the embargo line. They turn at the last minute. They don't go through the embargo line, but then they just sit there. So they're still there. There's well, still the opportunity for them to go to Cuba. And the what's also interesting about this time is for all the planning and execution that's gone into this, the ships, the battleships weren't really briefed on what to do if the Soviets ignored customs, basically. Like, if they just right. tried to go through, they were like, do we shoot them? Do we let it go? Like, what do we do? And I mean, do? even with all these dozens and dozens of ships running a perimeter around Cuba, like, some things can still get through. Right. 
We had to scramble to get these ships out there. Like Michael said, they didn't really have any direct orders, so they didn't know what to do at the time. They might not have even been equipped to fight if need be, because it was kind of like, you need to get out there, you need a former perimeter right now. We're mobilizing everything so quick that this plan hasn't really come together. Very tense couple of days, but on the morning of October 27th at 10 a.m., we get a letter from Nikita Khrushchev, and I say we, this comes to XCOM. Now, this letter is passed around the Oval Office, received the night before. Rushed and impassioned, Khrushchev appeals to Kennedy's sense of peace, stating that the weapons in Cuba can be used for nothing more than defense, and don't they deserve to be able to defend themselves? That's what nukes are for. Defense. Well, yeah. And at the end of the letter, Khrushchev states, If there is no intention to tighten that knot, and thereby doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie the knot. We are ready for this. Oh, and you didn't, uh, you didn't include my favorite part of that. He basically says, like, if the knot gets too tight, the only way to undo it is with the sword. Which I think is just a really awesome yeah. quote. Yeah, it really is. And like I said, this is a very impassioned and rushed letter. It has all sorts of grammatical errors, things like that. Which leads us to believe that this letter came from Nikita Khrushchev, and he typed it up one night. Now at 11 a.m. that same day, another letter arrives to the Oval Office from Khrushchev. And I'm going to say that with quotation marks. This letter is direct, concise, very clearly prepped, um, and even repetitive in some places. It says some things that Khrushchev said in the previous letter, like over again, for no reason. You know, this letter is probably not from Khrushchev, but I also want to read a part of this letter. I make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. We are willing to carry this out and to make a pledge to the United Nations. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States, for its part, considering the uneasiness and anxiety of the Soviet state, will remove its analogous means from Turkey. Now, what does that mean? Because we haven't talked about Turkey yet. Now, before I talk about Turkey and explain what this letter is saying, let me talk about the SM-78 Jupiter missile. Now, the SM-78 was a medium-range, ground-launched, liquid-fueled ballistic missile developed and deployed by the United States Air Force that had a range of roughly 1,500 miles. Now, like Michael said, 8,000 miles is full range across pretty much the entire world. 1,500 miles, not so much. Between 1958 and 59, the Air Force stationed about 30 of these missiles in Italy and 15 in Turkey. Because of their short reigns, it was essential to place them in these European countries to have forward striking capabilities. So right. if we wanted to strike first, like we had to have them there. Also, what use would these do in America? Just in case we have to nuke Canada? Like <laughs> Well, you could carry you could carry them technically on planes if you needed yeah, to, but know. you know. Mexico. Just in case. So <laughs> while the missiles in Italy could only reach far enough to strike one of USSR's satellite states in the case of an invasion. So essentially, Italy, these 30 missiles were, if Russia starts invading Europe, like, you can use these missiles. Um, but it was a little bit different in Turkey. See, the missiles in Turkey had the ability to strike at the heart of the USSR, and by that I mean Moscow. So when 
the USSR is proposing this. Essentially what they're saying is we can now strike at the heart of the U.S., but we'll remove those missiles if you remove your missiles in Turkey. So even trade. Now, Turkey wasn't really ready for this, and the U.S. didn't really want to appear weak, so this didn't seem like the ideal option for them, even though I would say it's definitely the fairest option for them. Um, but here's the thing. These missiles in Turkey were nearly obsolete. Uh, these missiles were slow, they were weak compared to modern nuclear power, and honestly unnecessary considering the B-52s that were hovering around the USSR that I talked about earlier. Uh, now in reality, the idea had been discussed from the very beginning, and in fact, Italy had offered freely to remove its missiles in exchange for this ordeal to be over. Like, they were like, we're ready for this to be done, we'll take ours out, we'll dismantle them, send them back to the U.S., um, it wasn't an ambassador that said that, but, you know, that's pretty reliable. And Turkey wasn't having it, and according to the USSR, it had to be Turkey that would take those missiles out. Now, XCOM was also against this idea, but before a decision could be made, more bad news came. At around noon of the same day, now keep this in mind, the first letter from Khrushchev at 10, the second letter comes at 11, around noon of the same day, a U-2 aircraft piloted by Major Rudolf Anderson was shot down over Cuban airspace. Now, the U.S. had stated on multiple occasions that the U.S. would respond to any attack on its aircraft by destroying the nuclear sites. In a meeting with XCOM, Kennedy decided to give the USSR one more chance. Now, later we'd come to find out that it wasn't the USSR's plan to shoot down this plane. Actually, like, uh, the Kremlin had said... Do not fire on anything unless we give you the option to be able to do so. Uh, the idea to shoot down this plane actually came from Raul Castro. So, there you go. And um, also, whenever the Kremlin found out that this had happened, they were like, oh crap, is Castro going rogue? Like, is he just like shooting planes down now? Like, is he ruining this for us? Khrushchev is quickly losing control of the situation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's because of that. They can't trust the Castros. Like, Fidel Castro is ready. He's just like, you know, if we all die in nuclear war, it will be for the cause of, you know... We'll talk about that ...non-capitalist society. We'll talk about it more later. Um, Robert Kennedy, after this, made it very clear to the Soviet ambassador um, that they would not get another chance if this happened again. Regardless, this plane being shot down had propelled the tensions to heights not yet achieved, and the threat of nuclear holocaust was closer than ever. The U.S. Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, walked out of the President's Oval Office to, as he described it, a perfectly beautiful fall night in Washington, and thought he might never live to see another Saturday night. Fun. What a fun thought to have. <laughs> what a fun thought. So, as the blockade continues, Castro is starting to fear for the worst. Like like we were talking about, he's kind of becoming unhinged at this point, and he's starting to freak out the Soviets a little bit. So, one night, he does his civic duty and writes his congressman, Nikita Khrushchev, to give him some advice. And his advice is that if the U.S. starts to invade Cuba, the USSR should just nuke the U.S. preemptively. Preemptively? Preemptively. Preemptively. That's what I'm looking for. Nuclear. Um, nuclear. Um, <laughs> his advice is that if the U.S. starts to invade Cuba, 
he should preemptively strike the U.S. before it has a chance to nuke either of them. Essentially, in his letter, Castro tells the USSR that he's willing to sacrifice Cuba in the greater fight for communism. Uh, and the saw, USSR is like, please don't. Play, yeah, <laughs> no, because it's not just you. Like, you're not please the only one that's going to get nuked here. Um, but but Castro essentially saw this as the same as a person giving their life in a war, right? Like, he's just sacrificing a whole country. Um, oh. Now, it's worth noting that when asked about this letter in 2010, Castro said that he regretted sending it, and such a preemptive strike would not have been worth it. No. Dying's hardly worth anything. Like, if we're going to be honest, there's a few things that you can fight for, really. But, like, getting your entire country wiped off the face of the earth is worth nothing. Like, right. that's, that's, no. Nothing's worth that. Don't do that. But I think the fact that he thought that at the time just shows how lucky we are that Castro didn't have access to the nukes. Like, yeah. the USSR still firmly is the one in control of the nukes, even in Cuba. Thanks, um, Khrushchev. But we'll fun more fact, later. not really thanks, Khrushchev, because the nukes in Cuba were controlled by local commanders who were authorized to launch without talking to Moscow first. So right, Castro, but these are Khrushchev's men. Right. I mean, they they were still under his command, but Khrushchev they made had it very authorization. Clear. Khrushchev made it very clear: don't you don't do anything that Castro says. You do right. what I say. Exactly. And Khrushchev was this way in everything. So I I still th- say thanks, Khrushchev. Like this yeah, is they no, weren't no, no, yeah, do I anything. don't mean to downplay his role, but like yeah, they also deserve some credit because they had their finger on the button. Hmm. Um, so in addition to sending Khrushchev this letter, Castro also declared publicly that any U.S. planes were to be shot down on site. Meanwhile, the United States had set the Strategic Air Command to DEFCON 2 for the first time in history. Now what this means is, at all times, 65 B-52 bombers were airborne, armed with nukes, and ready to attack the Soviet Union should the call go out. So we upped that number a little bit from earlier. Yeah. From like twenty something to sixty five, and it's constant, right? So if one goes, if one lands, another one takes off. Like it's well, even still, they don't really even have to land. Uh, they do land occasionally because obviously you have to change out the crews. But right. like, you know, they, they run refuel. out of They run out of gas and they're refueled midair. Yeah, yeah. So, so Kennedy also informed XCOM that he believed that they would soon be left with no other choice but to invade Cuba, and he ordered surveillance flights to be increased from twice a day. To 12 times a day. So things are really, really ramping up. Um, Also not a good mix whenever Castro has already declared that he's going to start shooting down your planes. Um, So while the American government was trying to hammer out its next move, the American people were trying to prepare for the worst. Now remember, Kennedy has just recently given this public speech where he's basically told the world, like, hey, bad stuff's going down. Yeah. Now... The American people started panic buying, uh, and the things in highest demand were canned goods, bottled water, and of course, toilet paper. But I'm sure you can't possibly imagine uh, toilet paper being out of stock. Um, Oh my god, there were two months where I was like, constantly on the brink of having to just jump in the shower every time I used the toilet. Gross. Uh, Oh, 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 hey, hey, don't talk down a poop shower, okay? 
A poop shower. That, you still wipe. That's a you respect. Don't, you don't forego wiping before you, you get in the shower. You might not have the option. I've never been faced with that challenge before, Michael, but damn it, we all know what COVID has done to us. It made us damn near animals. All right. Now, also of note here is the fact that access to fallout shelters were incredibly limited. See, most people couldn't afford to build one themselves, and the public options were few and far between. In 1961, Kennedy put forward a program that was to create 1.4 million public fallout shelter signs to be placed at strategic points throughout the country. Now, notice that I said 1.4 million signs. Weren't necessarily 1.4 million shelters, and I'm not even positive that all the signs actually had a designated fallout shelter associated with them. Well, the thing is, the cool thing is you can still, like, drive around the country and see these. I'm not sure if anyone listening has seen them, but, like, where we used to live, there was a church that had the, like, designated nuclear fallout shelter sign on it. And it was, like, really funny to drive by it every time. And essentially it was just because, you know, it had a basement. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's the thing is New York City just started pulling those signs down because almost all of the quote-unquote public shelters have been converted into something else by this point. Yeah. And it's not like nuclear bombs are gone, so I don't... (laughs) Yeah. This is the thing that also worries me in researching this, is like... We've just gotten lax in our preparation. Yeah, we've just gotten lax. I think it's just because we've realized, oh, no one's ever going to do this. Uh, I think it's more that, like, if it happens, you don't have enough time to prepare for anything. That's fair. But anyway... Instead of those dark thoughts, let's continue. Okay. (laughs) In the United Nations, things were starting to heat up. Uh, In the last episode, you'll remember, Cayman was talking about uh, the U.S. ambassador that looked like an idiot claiming that American planes were actually Cuban defectors, right? And they had the the metal noses where the Cuban planes had plastic noses. Right. Um, Well, that man, his name is Adelaide Stevenson. Uh, He gets his redemption in this story. Adelaide, that sounds like a Ruski name. (laughs) (laughs) He's a spy. Uh, Oh, okay. I don't think he is, but based on this story, though. It's a dope name, though. Stevenson gives a presentation to an emergency session of the United Nations Security Council. And basically, he explains the U.S.'s position. um, And the USSR had been trying to claim that the wrongdoing was actually with the United States because they kept spying on Cuba. But I love his response. Stevenson basically compares this to arresting someone for catching a burglary. The exchange between Stevenson and the USSR ambassador... Uh, named Ambassador Zorin uh, is awesome and I want to do kind of a dr- dramatic reenactment. I'll play the role of Ambassador Stevenson and Cayman will be Ambassador Zorin. Alright. Let me set the stage. You're at a UN Security Council. <laughs> there's a big r- circular room and there's like a table in the middle and just people sitting all around it. It's uh, uh imagine, imagine just the stereotypical war room. That's yeah. That's where you are. Okay. <clears throat> All right, sir. Let me ask you one simple question. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba? Yes or no? Don't wait for the translation. Yes or no? Statement in Russian followed by English translation through a United Nations interpreter. I am not an American courtroom, sir. And therefore, I do not wish to answer a question that is put to me in the fashion which a prosecutor does. 
In due course, sir, you will have your reply. Do not worry. You are in the court of world opinion right now, and you can answer yes or no. You have denied that they exist, so I want to know if I have understood you correctly. Sir, will you please continue your statement? You will have your answer in due course. I am prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision. And I'm also prepared to present the evidence in this room. Now, before we talk about the evidence that he then presents, what I love about this is that the U.S. ambassador knows that the USSR ambassador can speak perfect English. So oh, yeah. whenever he starts accusing him, he like play like he just starts looking to his translator like like uh, I don't know what to say. So so like he just starts grilling him. He's like, you know, you know exactly what I said. Just answer the question, yes well, or no. Well, that's the great thing about the United Nations is you can always look to your translator. And then, like, think of what you want yeah, to say. exactly. Because, like, in regular conversation, you can't just pause. Right. <laughs> and, like, but uh, once again, we get back to this point where, like, for some reason, all of the Russians in this story, I'm pretty sure, speak English. Yeah. Like, Castro spoke English. Why does... I, I hate to keep being critical of Americans, but come on, guys. We gotta learn some more languages. Yeah. I can't speak any other languages. So, talking about the evidence that Stevenson starts to pull out... He pulls out these giant, like, Kinko's printed out posters of, like, the uh, pictures that they had taken on their spy planes. Now, keep um, in mind, Kinko's wasn't around at this point in time, so he had to... He had to search to around actual... for somebody that could print a right. poster for him. <laughs> but he pulls out these giant representations of, of the nukes that they've been seeing in Cuba and the construction sites. And, like, basically he's like, here's the construction site th three days ago. Here it is today. And it's, like, just a giant, like, missile launching facility. And he's like, huh, that's real interesting, isn't it? And he's just, like, grilling this USSR ambassador. Like, right, just putting and Stevenson... Like, he brings his name back at this point in time because, like, he's like, I got caught with my pants down last time. Like, this time I'm going to make sure I know what I'm fucking talking about. So, like, he was advised by the military. He talked to XCOM. Like, he came with all the evidence he needed. There was no backing your way out of the argument that Stevenson was bringing at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also read that, like, after... After his humiliation, like, Kennedy reached out to him personally to be like, hey, we, we were trying to protect you. Like, we didn't want you to know anything so that you wouldn't get caught in a situation you didn't want to be in. But anyway, yeah. So, like Cayman said, he basically redeems himself in this moment. And, and really just, like, this is widely televised, like, globally. So this is kind of the moment that everyone else realizes, oh, no, this is a situation that affects more than just these groups like this is a yeah. global this is a global incident um, a third by by very conservative and i mean this this was estimates that were stated back then but even now experts agree a third of the world's population not our population not the soviet russian population a third of the world's population would probably have been wiped out by a thermonuclear war it's crazy a third and this is at this point in time. By the time that we get to the 80s, like, that number is yeah. not... Once we get in hydrogen bombs being, you know, a dime a dozen, it, it, that number changes a lot. At this point in time, a third of the population is still just astronomical to think about. Yeah. 
And so from a from a global perspective, the troops stationed in West Germany and West Berlin were expecting the fight to start to carry over to them should anything go down. Like we've talked about that a couple times. Like that's a huge point of contention within this whole conflict. Now remember, the USSR can hit anywhere in Europe with their medium-range nukes, which are much more common. So many of the US's allies were also really just banking on a peaceful resolution to this. Now, one name that surprisingly I don't think we've ever said on the podcast is Mao Zedong, leader of the communist China uh, at this time. The and, most prolific killer of all time. Yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely have to do more on him at some point. But right now, the USSR and China are in the middle of what's known as the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, and I would also like to cover that more in the future, but... For now, I'll just give a quick overview. Basically, China and the USSR are arguing about ideology and what form of communism they should be looking to spread to the rest of the world. And their their split ideologies were aptly named Stalinism and Maoism. Now, because they couldn't resolve their differences, the two countries weren't really on good terms. Um, that being said, if this turns into a shooting war... China's almost definitely going to be on the USSR's side. Like, they might be arguing, but at the end of the day, they're still on the same team. Right. Especially, like, against a, you know, capitalist nation. So well, it's like, you know, Republicans and Democrats don't like each other, but if 9-11 happens, then they're going right. to see Right, they're going to like, band together to take away all of our freedoms. And that's it's what this is. This is, a, this is an entire way of thought this is an entire way of government an entire way of life and honestly like you know i know that russia's technically most of the decision making russia is european but they're still a very asian uh asian centralized thought i guess i should say most of their land is in asia most of their lands in asia you know like they still think very communist very all for the people type thing. It's it's a completely different culture, a completely different th- way of thinking, a completely different government. And regardless of the disagreements that they have, they all still like band together on those three things. So like they're going to unite against America no matter what. And Europe, because you know, America's pretty much European. Yeah. So the and and what's important to note here is that one of the reasons that the USSR and the People's Republic of China were feuding was the Chinese thought that the Russians were backing down from too many fights. They were letting the Western world win too many disagreements. Um, so I have to think that they would back the USSR pretty heavily if they were willing to you know, turn this into a shooting war. Well, also, and this is the last point I want to lay out about like sino Russian relations. China had been communist for a much shorter amount of time than Russia had. Russia had had a communist government since what, 1921? China was was it 40s, 50s, 50s, I think. Regardless, it, it seems like the sooner you become a communist government, like the shorter amount of time, like you're literally less mature. Which sounds crazy because, like, you you have these people in government that could be whatever age. But literally, the longer that a country has been a country, like, the more, like, rational thinking they are. And it really seems like Russia's Papa communism at this point. 
they've been communists for the longest amount of time. And China's like, you can't let them talk to you like that. And he's like, oh, you know, hey, we don't want to start a war. This would be bad for everyone. And China's like, you should fight. And Russia's like, eh, no, like we, yeah. we got to try and do the diplomatic option first. Yeah. So also China was a lower priority nuke target. So I don't think they were, they had as much skin in the game. No, yeah, they didn't. So even though um, technically they had more skin. Yeah, a lot more, lot more population for sure. Very many so, organs. <laughs> yes. Uh, so even the Vatican got involved uh, when the Pope sent a message to both nations trying to smooth relations and to promote peace, which makes total sense for Kennedy, you know, seeing as he was Catholic. Um, but for Khrushchev, he was a devout atheist, um, promoting atheism throughout the USSR. So that was kind of a gamble. But, I mean, still, the Pope is world leader at this time. Which Pope is this? Uh, the Pope? I mean, the Pope leads one of the largest nations in the world. The problem is those nations just happen to have affiliations with other countries. Pope John the 23rd. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, regardless of your religious beliefs, I think you can still appreciate the Pope calling for peace. Um one of the largest nations in the world it's yeah. like the dalai lama right if the dalai lama like sent me a message being like hey don't be a dick i'd be like oh all right thanks dalai honestly lama. any religious leader at this point in time is like hey you're kind of being an asshole i'm gonna be like oh no <laughs> am i the asshole oh no is your god still cool with me <laughs> I, I think i know what religion i am but i don't want to piss off any of them if i'm gonna be honest that, right, like, this is something that, like, <laughs> Michael and I went to a Catholic funeral not too long ago, and I later said, like, I forgot, you, you when you're not Catholic, you're supposed to do this, and then the priest will give we're you on a blessing. A, we're on a, we're on a audio medium Oh, it, well, you're supposed to cross your arms uh, across your chest, if you're not Catholic, during communion. You're supposed to cross right. your arms on your chest, and then the Catholic priest will give you a blessing for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And and I wanted to do it. And someone asked me later, like, why you're not Catholic? And it's like, I want to cover my bases here. Like, right, exactly. you know, also, like, they wouldn't have a they wouldn't have like a visual thing to do for non-Catholics if non-Catholics didn't do it. Right. You know? Yeah. You just never trying to know. cover my bases there. So uh, it's at this point that Kennedy and Khrushchev decide that they really need to make a compromise. So on the night of October 27th, XCOM drafted a response to Khrushchev's letters. And after Kennedy made many changes of his own, he approved that the message could be sent. And I'm going to quote now. As I read in your letter, the key elements of your proposals, which seem generally acceptable as I understand them, are as follows. One, you would agree to remove these weapon systems from Cuba under appropriate United Nations observation and supervision and undertake with suitable safeguards to halt the further introduction of such weapons into Cuba. Two, we on our part would agree upon the establishment of adequate arrangements through the United Nations to ensure the carrying out and continuation of these commitments, to remove promptly the quarantine measures now in effect, and to give assurances against the invasion of Cuba. Now, this message was not only sent to the USSR, but was sent to news outlets to be published 
ensuring the message was out there. So, like, even if it didn't make it to Russia, you can't claim, like, you didn't hear about it because, like, it's across America, it's across Europe. Like, we're having this discussion publicly. Now. Also, it's a stellar political move because you're basically like, we're giving you all all the options to get peace here. Like, if, yeah. if you don't want it, that's on you. Now, see, the problem is this, it, the USSR had actually kind of started this because they did a public announcement where they kind of said, like, we're going to take our bombs out if the U.S. takes their bombs out. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to appear for that on the outside. And now, this put the USSR, this single message put the USSR in a terrible position because this letter responded to the demands of Khrushchev's first letter, not the second, which I would, I'm going to say very obviously came from the Kremlin and not Khrushchev. They're disregarding the second letter, which was much more refined. Now, on 9 a.m. Eastern Time, October 28th, Khrushchev, in a public broadcast, stated, The Soviet government, in addition to previously issued instructions on the cessation of further work in building sites for the weapons, has issued a new order on the dismantling of the weapons which you describe as offensive and they're creating and return to the Soviet Union. Now, why did the USSR decide to accept these demands? And I'm going to say there's essentially two reasons. One, the pressure was picking up, and it started to look like it was a war that the USSR would lose. And even if they won, it would come at the price of, like we said, a third of humanity. Also, you know, we're losing our grasp on Castro at this time, so they're freaking out. Like, they don't really know what to do. They have to find some sort of peace deal or there's going to be Armageddon. Like, those are the two options. There has to be peace or there has to be Armageddon. They can't carry this out any longer. I know what I would pick. Armageddon. Armageddon, yeah. Go, Michael. Now, Kennedy made a deal under the table. This is the second reason that the USSR decided to accept these demands. It's Because under the table, we said that we wouldn't make a deal to trade the missiles... But what we could do is remove the missiles after theirs were gone. Quietly and out of the public eye. Now, the way they made that kind of under-the-table deal is Robert Kennedy went to the uh, USSR embassy and basically had a back-channel meeting and basically said, like, if this is the only deal. Like, you either take it or not. But, like, if you don't, we're gonna invade basically you say that like it's nothing like imagine walking into an embassy and being like here's the deal you either take it or there's nuclear holocaust right or a third exactly. of the population like it's like it's hey, it's, hey. it's it's the no. definition of an offer you can't refuse right oh my but god here's it's the interesting thing your balls or both our balls I was watching a History Channel documentary, and they were talking to the guy that had this meeting, and he's obviously old. This was made in, like, the 90s, and he's old then. But, like, they do a recreation of the meeting, They do, but they don't use an actor for both. They use the old guy and then an actor playing Robert Kennedy. So it's just, like, <laughs> Robert Kennedy talking to this really old man. I don't know. It was really weird. I hate how we represented like still the russians in media like it's always some fat old bald dude no it was the dude they used the dude in his recreation they used the oh, actual like the guy actual yeah. dude but it was like a robert was he kennedy fat, impersonator bald and russian yes and i was like what 
why? Like, why not get another person to play him also? That's kind of badass. Maybe you wanted to play it. Maybe. I don't know. I It's the weird, like... Maybe History Channel was trying to save some money. Russians were... I'm not going to say Russians were terrible. We had a lot of reasons to be genuinely upset with the Russians at this point in time. But it's weird, like, specifically in researching this story... How much respect I've walked away with having for the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's it's really, like, the more you read, the more you realize, like, a lot of the stuff, how similar we are. Like, I mean... Uh, oh, it's the entire thing I want to say. Like, it's just made me realize more and more, like, we're literally, and this is the most cliche thing to say, but we're literally not that different. Like, We're not so different, you and I. <laughs> yeah, no, the Rocky Four. If I can change and you can change, we can Everybody all change. Can change. Yeah, we haven't no. talked about the fact that Rocky actually ended the Cold War. He we'll did. have to do that episode at some point. But... He, oh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone in the same year uh, won the Vietnam War for us in Rambo 2, and he ended the Cold War. Yes, as Rocky IV, so. the best Rocky. Um, but regardless, the thing is, like, I mean, we just had different governments, and yeah. that was literally it. Other than that, no one wanted to die. We were all building shelters. We were, like, it's... People are still people, no matter where they're located. So, like, we might look at these people as, like, the ultra enemy of the U.S., but they were still the same. So, on November 5th, after careful observation that the missiles were, in fact, removed, U.S. ships began lifting their embargo on Cuba. By April 24th, 1963, the last of the missiles in Turkey had also been disassembled. So, we honored our deal, the USSR honored their deal, and most importantly, the USSR didn't say anything. So, like, they honestly kept this promise of, we're going to look like we're taking our missiles out in the US US won, but they're also going to take their missiles out. So much of a secret that most of the people in the USSR didn't even know that Khrushchev had made the secret deal because he wasn't public about it. Yeah, and and a lot of people in the US didn't know that that deal had been made either. So it really bolstered the military at the time who saw it as a military might victory. And some people say that that's why they felt so emboldened to go into Vietnam. It's, it's it's the craziest thing in the world. Like, the USSR, and I'm going to get into this in a second, the USSR is the reason that nuclear holocaust did not happen. Question before we move on. Yep. Turkey knew what was going on, right? Like, no. when we were like, hey, we're taking our nukes out, what was that like? Maybe we'll get into it in the, in the um, episode. Those nukes were on U.S. bases. So, so honestly, did I, even I did kind of look for this. I'm not sure if they knew for a while that we'd taken them out. I want to do some more research on that and maybe talk about it in the bonus episode. Yeah, we'll talk about it in the bonus episode, but I don't think that they really know that they were being taken out. Now, the world at this point breathed a sigh of relief. Like, essentially, like, once the Russian missiles were out, like, we started being a lot more friendly the Moscow-Washington hotline was established as a result of the close run-in with this mutually assured destruction thing. A direct line of communication was established between the Kremlin and the Pentagon so that the U.S. and the USSR could work more effectively to avoid these situations in the future. Because that's how they saw this. They saw this as, like, a situation. Is that like the red phone that you've seen in the movies and 
Yes, but it was never a phone. It was oh. never a phone. So originally it was like a um, telegraph type situation that was established. Okay. And I think in the 80s it was converted to fax. And mm. then in the um, 2000s it was converted to email. A fax machine and then an email. Line. Yeah. So it's never okay. been a phone. It's never been a phone. Kremlin at AOL.com. <laughs> <laughs> imagine like sending an email to let's try sending an email to them (laughs) one thing to point out here is that all these communications like before this was established were going through the same communication lines as everything else so whether you were sending like a happy birthday message to somebody in russia or you were sending here's how to not get nuked to russia it was all going on the same channel but i have to think that part of the reason that this went as smoothly as it did was the cooldown period. Because, like, if you look at the very beginning of XCOM, mm-hmm. everybody was heated. Like, it was almost guaranteed, like, we're going to have to invade. Like, this cannot stand. We're going to have to do something. But the fact that this took place over 13 days because of how slow communication was, you gave people a chance to breathe, gave people a chance to get a cool head. I think if they had that immediate communication i don't think this would have went as smoothly yeah i i agree there actually is this um documentary it was a pbs documentary it was called the cuban missile crisis three men go to war and they talk about this exact thing that you're talking about it was essentially like you know because communications were so slow at this point in time they had the opportunity to look at it and i i think really um a lot of what happened here was because it was all carefully prepared communications, but I don't think that's what stopped it. Because if we could communicate more quickly, like literally human civilization is, as far as I can tell, put on a meter of how quickly can we communicate. Mm-hmm. And the quicker that we communicate, the less we have these kind of problems. True. If we can talk to each other, we're probably not going to have a war. Right. Even, you know, the worst politicians that you can imagine across the world right now, they're not in wars. Yeah. Because gradually we have less and less because we can talk more and more and we can be like, well, we we don't really want a million of our people to die for this one thing or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, but I, I get where you're coming from. Um, at this point in time, it's definitely a different type of world and it's instances like these establishing the moscow washington hotline we never had a threat this severe again like this was the closest that we ever came to nuclear holocaust Mm -hmm. now castro at this point in time because i feel like in in this entire episode we haven't talked about castro and if you wonder why because he didn't have any power he's a pawn he was the landlord for the for the nukes (laughs) Um, at this point in time, Castro realizes, regardless of him taking over Cuba, regardless of the nukes that he had, regardless of the Bay of Pigs, he is a pawn. He wanted blood this entire time. He wanted to go after America. He wanted to be able to have that sort of power. But in the end of it all, he was a small fish in a big game. Soviet-Cuban relationships obviously deteriorated. I don't, I don't think that's the saying. Soviet, yeah, he was a small fish in a big game. No, no a small, small fish in a, fish big, in a pond. big pond. 
in? Okay. Nobody has ever said small fish in a big game. What game are fish in? We're near the end of the episode. I'm gonna okay. need you guys to calm the fuck down. No laughing on the podcast. <laughs> but in the end of it all, he was a small fish in a big pond. Soviet-Cuban relationships deteriorated over the coming decade, although there remained trade and military allies. Um, but regardless, like, Castro's just out of it at this point. Like, yeah. he, he thought that he was bigger than he was. I honestly think that that's true. And then when it comes to the point of, yeah, now you're going toe-to-toe with us and Russia. The U.S. is like, we're going toe-to-toe with Russia? And yeah. Cuba's like, yeah, <laughs> us and Russia. And U.S. is like, oh, no, not Russia. And Cuba's like, eh, or, eh. But, uh, yeah, so... Um, Essentially, like, Cuba just didn't have skin in the game, honestly, as we talked about before. And Khrushchev took it in stride. Like, this, Khrushchev, after this event, had two more years as leader of the Soviet Union. I want to talk about Khrushchev more. Maybe we'll talk about it in the next episode. But, like, he took this event. He said, you take the missiles out of Turkey we'll take the missiles out of Cuba. And the U.S. said, okay, in the best interest of your people, we'll take them out of Turkey if you take them out of Cuba, but you cannot tell anyone that we took them out of Turkey. Yeah. And they don't say anything for a long time. I think maybe the first time that Khrushchev says anything about it is in his autobiography later in life. But, like, this ruins his career because the Soviet people see him as weak. The Soviet party sees him as weak. Over this deal, not realizing that the Turkish missiles have been taken out, like, when it happens. So, I, like, hell yeah, Khrushchev. You crashed your entire Yeah, I mean, he career. jumped on the grenade. He jumped on the yeah, grenade. He jumped on the, the grenade for everyone. For yeah. everyone. For us, for Russia, for Europe. Like, Khrushchev, like, and, like, Khrushchev definitely did bad shit early in his life. I mean, you literally talked about him making a political assassination to gain power. He's not oh, yeah, a good he did guy. A lot of them. But no, he's in not this a good moment, guy. in this moment, he redeems himself. Yeah. Like, it, it, are you going to don't weigh things it's, against it each other? It was his Darth Vader moment. Yeah. This is where he, this is where he, did he threw the, the emperor down the, the shaft or whatever. I would love to dub over like episode six with uh, Luke Skywalker instead being Kennedy and uh, Darth Vader being Khrushchev. I would love that. That'd be very good. But yeah, no, I, I have immense respect for Khrushchev. After and then the Emperor's just like a JPEG of a nuke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just the human condition, man. Cool. So is that, I think that's it. All right, you want to go into After Notes? I want to go in after notes. You want to go first, or you want sure. me to go first? I can go first. So, fun okay. fact: JFK was actually the person that coined the term "missile gap." Um, Kennedy used this was as a really? big talking point to win his Senate election in 1958, and then uh, in 1960, when he ran against Nixon, he basically accused President Eisenhower and Nixon for being the reason that we were so behind in the nuclear race, and um, probably led to him beating out Nixon. How are you gonna ruin Kennedy for me like that? Sorry, he's, the, he, he's he's one of the reasons that that became such a huge talking point. Honestly, the bad thing is, the more I look back now, and don't take that as uh, this as my p- 
political affiliation. I honestly consider myself a swing voter. But looking back now, I think I would have been one of the Nixon voters. You already said that. You said that in the Nixon episode. That's why I brought it up earlier today. I don't think I would have voted against Kennedy. Both of you said in Nixon that you would vote for Nixon. I would have voted for Nixon. I, we would vote for Nixon, but I don't know that I would have voted against Kennedy. I would have voted oh, for okay. him uh, yeah. against Hubert Humphrey, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that election, definitely against Hubert Humphreys. But I'm going to say against Kennedy, honestly, I think I would have voted for him against Kennedy. I don't know. That's tough for me. I can't say. Knowing what I know now, if I could go back in time, I would have voted for Kennedy. Can you imagine if Nixon was the one leading XCOM? We would be. We would have gotten nuked. I honestly don't think so. I think, well, we're not going to get into the whole Nixon episode again. So that was your that was your afternoon. That, I'm going to move on to mine. Okay. We can talk. We can. One. Me and Michael can sit and talk about Nixon all day. We have to. That's literally what we do on this podcast. We can talk do about an Nixon. entire podcast about Nixon, but we're going to move on. Just wait till we get uh, into the war on drugs. <laughs> oh no. Uh, so um, my entire thing I want to talk about. That's uh, the note where I had to write down this person's name because it's difficult to say. I want to talk about Vasily Arkhipov. Killing it. Do you know who Vasily Arkhipov no is? No idea. He, there should be a statue of him in every U.S. city on Earth. Um, so essentially, during the entire point where we were having the blockade, the USSR was challenging it. There was actually a point in time where U.S. destroyers started firing sub-rocks down, trying to destroy a submarine that they'd picked up on their sonar. I Okay, so I do know who this is. Yeah, they were not trying to destroy is. that submarine. They were trying to signal it to, to, to come to surface. Right. A submarine under the sea, regardless of what their intentions were, starts seeing like all these bombs come down... Regardless how they perceived it, they thought that maybe they could be just trying to destroy the submarine. It's really hard to tell when you're very far underwater what the ships above you shooting down explosives are trying to do. So essentially it came to a vote. The top three commanders with the highest rank on the submarine were given the option, are we going to fire back? Has a war started? Two of those commanders believed, yes, a war had started. And firing back is firing with nukes. like Yes, firing with a nuclear torpedo. And two of those commanders said, yes, a war has started while we've been out of communication. We need to fire our nuclear torpedoes. One of those commanders, Vasily Arkhipov, said no. He is literally the only thing that stopped us from nuclear annihilation. Like, that's the only thing that stopped the war, was that single person saying no. So, and honestly, he also believed that a war had started. But he believed we shouldn't all destroy each other. Like, there's got to be people left. He, there should be a statue of him in every fucking city. I agree. He is a hero. He's yes. a world hero. Regardless world of his affiliation. Hero. He is a human savior. Um, yes. My question. Mm -hmm. Are nuclear submarines suicide missions? No. Because How could it's... you survive if you... Because, okay, so the, the, the destroyer's, like, really close. They shoot a nuke at the destroyer. They hit How the destroyer. do they not blow up also? Submarines don't always follow destroyers. 
But that's what it was, right? They were going to shoot a nuke at the destroyer. They were because they were... Well, no, no, no. Okay. Okay. Um, honestly, my father, I think, could probably explain this better, mm-hmm. considering he was on a submarine. Right, we'll, we'll get him on the bonus episode. We'll get him on the bonus... <laughs> no, my dad doesn't have that good of a mic. I'll... I tell you what, I'll give my dad a call between now and the okay. bonus episode. We'll, we'll talk about it then. I'll try and get some more information, and I'll bring it back and represent it as best if I can. Sounds um, good. But he talks about these things called the Subrocks, which they had on their submarine, which are essentially the entire point with nukes underwater is different with the point of nukes above water. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, nuclear torpedoes, what you do is you detonate the nuclear explosion. Why don't you talk to your dad, and then you can do this in the bonus episode. I mean, I've heard him talk about this many times. Um, let me finish this thought. Okay. We can cut it later if we want to. But you detonate the nuclear explosion underneath the ship that you're fighting against instead of on the ship. And what it does is it literally evaporates all the water in that space. The ship falls in and the ocean crushes it. Right. So you don't destroy the ship. The ocean destroys the ship. So would that have led to nuclear war? Yes. I think you could have yes. gotten a shooting war going. I don't know if I think I think that honestly. Would have been a nuclear war. I don't know. Uh, the hard first to say. Time hard to say. Uses a nuke, hard to say. It's hard to say for sure. But do you have any any more yeah, afternoons? I've got one more. I know um, we're saving a lot, but so you got one more. Go for it. Before Kennedy uh, went out to give that you know public speech about explaining the situation and, and what was going on in Cuba. They, they had a lot of meetings. They actually sent the speech to Khrushchev an hour before just to be like, hey, here, we want you to know in advance. Here's what we're about to tell the world. And they also had a meeting with all of the of the Western allies, right? Basically explaining everything before um, the world knew. And in that meeting, everyone agreed with the U.S.'s decision except Canada, who wanted to just let it go. Like They were like, ah, the U.S. shouldn't do anything. Just just forgive them for what they've done. Which is a very Canada move. Yeah. And I get it. It's a a very Jedi move. They don't hold grudges. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, I'm sure Canada looked at it and was like, well, wait, U.S., don't you guys have nukes in Turkey? (laughs) Like... Like this is oh, oh you know it's it's kind of fair when I think about it. Don't you know? Don't you know when I think <laughs> about it? It's kind of fair. Yeah, I I agree with Canada there. Twenty percent, twenty percent. All right, that's all my afternoons. All right, cool. Well, like I said, we're going to wrap everything up. We're gonna do one more Cuba episode where we talk about everything that we have to say. Um, maybe we'll answer some listener emails if we have enough listener emails. Um, but until then, like, thanks for sticking with us. Like, this is, this is the meat and potatoes of the Cuba series that we've done. I hope that you've enjoyed this entire series that we've done. I'll give more praises next episode. Uh, in the meantime, be sure to follow us on Twitter. It's at R-I-W-Y-H podcast. And on Instagram, follow us at I really wish you hadn't. Got any questions, comments, anything like that? You just want to tell us how you felt about the episode? You want to tell us how your day went? Literally anything. Go ahead, shoot us an email at podcast at IReallyWishYouHadn't.com. Bonus points if it's in haiku form. Oh, bonus points if it's haiku for sure. If you haven't yet, I'm going to use a YouTube term and 
dab smash that follow button. I'm Fortnite dancing right now. I'm doing the floss. Please, pretty please, give us a follow. You know, we work really hard on this, and follows are really significant to the whole metric of how things work. So, you know, give us that follow. And reviews. Yeah, yeah, and reviews. Yeah, we like it all. You don't even have to write anything. Just put five stars on it. Yeah. Interact as much as possible. We do this for you. Do a little something for us. Come on. Tell us if you love it, dude or dudette. And that's it. Is that it? That's it. Yeah, that's that's where uh, Michael picks up. Okay, all right. I'm pushing the button. You guys can't hear this though. I gotta push this button and then this button. Here we go. I really wish you hadn't is hosted by me, Michael Bentley, and Cayman McMahon. We're produced by Colin Moore. Intro and outro music by Attack Story. Our cover art is by Nickator. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, don't nuke anyone. Just leave your nukes at home. And as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.